In 2019, Chelsea fans posted a video on social media. There's been another instance of racism involving Chelsea supporters. The video appeared to show six supporters chanting, Salah is a bomber, repeatedly on their way to the club's Europa League quarterfinal first leg at Slavia. Mohamed Salah plays for Liverpool. He is a Muslim, playing in a league that has a reputation for racism and Islamophobia. But a few days after that video was posted, when Liverpool played Chelsea at home, he put his faith and talent on full display. Salah's going to have a go! Absolutely sensational from Mohamed Salah! After taking a minute to hug his teammates, he dropped to his knees, touching his head to the pitch and began to pray. It's uncommon these days to see representations of Muslims or of Islam that have that much widespread support. Uh, you do obviously have notable exceptions. You have your like Muhammad Ali's and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Mo Farah in the UK, who's a runner. But in the Premier League and in soccer, I'd say this was still relatively new. From foreign policy and Doha debates, this is The Long Game, a podcast about the power of sports to change the world. I'm your host, Iftihaj Mohammed. Mohamed Salah doesn't give a lot of interviews about his faith, but he does put his faith on display, very publicly and very consistently. Here's reporter Nico Emak. For lawyers Asif Bodhi and Abu Bakr Bula, growing up in Preston, England, watching, cheering, and supporting Liverpool has become a lifelong tradition. Probably when I was in primary school, maybe about seven, eight years old. That's Abu Bakr. Liverpool were sort of top of the league at the time, winning everything in sight. So it was quite easy to support them at that time. When I was 18, this is quite a funny story. That's Asif. I had a Saturday job in a department store and all the games in those days were just on Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. So there wasn't any games on any other evenings or any other days like Sundays as there are now. So what we did, I had a friend there, um, an English friend who was also a Liverpool supporter. So we, we used to share the ticket. And we used to tell our employers that we were sick on alternate Saturdays. And it took them three years to find out that we weren't telling the truth. And, and when they did find out, we, we obviously left before they, they could fire us. <laughs> so it's quite funny that. It wasn't until he was around 20 years old that Abu Bakr was able to attend his first game at Anfield. But after an unforgettable experience of seeing his favorite players in the flesh, it didn't take long for him to become a season ticket holder. Years later, Asif and Abu Bakr would meet at their local mosque, begin practicing law together, and embark on a friendship founded in their love for Liverpool Football Club. The two men would regularly attend games together. Sometimes Asif would bring his son, for true fans like them, there was nothing better than soaking in the atmosphere of a game. In the Muslim faith, there are five daily prayers. And depending on what time of the year it is, the window to pray can be very small. I mean, there are certain prayers that you can, you can pray within a, a big window, if you like. So, for example, at the moment, we can pray the mid-afternoon prayer between 1.15 and, and 5 p.m. But there are certain prayers like the early evening prayer which you have to pray within 15 minutes or half an hour of the time. 
If they were attending a game during one of these windows, all it would require is some extra planning. Well, usually what would happen was well, we we have a friend who lives near the stadium, so we, we'd usually go on the upper floor of his store and pray there. It's actually an Arab friend who lives a stone's throw away from the ground. Asif never really worried about it. After all, he says, he's always felt like Liverpool and Merseyside were more tolerant than other parts of the UK. It was one of the first places where Islam was introduced to the UK as well. I think it's the site of one of the oldest mosques in the UK as well. Asif remembers once going to a Champions League game with a friend, and it was difficult to find a place to pray. We found a little a block of apartments, and they had a courtyard, so we went inside the courtyard and started praying there. And one gentleman, middle-aged gentleman, came out of his house and, and said, look, what are you doing, guys? What, what are you doing praying outside? And he invited us into his house to pray. I mean, that was wonderful. But in March of 2015, two years before Salah would sign for Liverpool, Asif and Abu Bakr traveled to Anfield to watch their side in an FA Cup quarterfinal. Prayer time fell just after kickoff. So it wasn't possible to pray before we entered the ground. So we waited until half time. We, we didn't actually pray in the seats. You know, we, we tried to find a quiet place. And, and we asked one of the stewards and he said, just pray, pray under the stairwell. So we went there. And, you know, we weren't obstructing anybody or uh, causing a commotion or anything. We were just quietly going around our, our business. You know, it takes about five minutes. My son was with me. He's, he was probably 10 years old at the time. But when they finished praying... My son said, oh, some bloke at the top was, t- was taking pictures. And we thought nothing of it. We thought maybe he's just taking a picture for his own, you know, memory or whatever, just to, you know, show other people. But then we discovered afterwards that it had been uh, uploaded to Twitter or, or one of the other social media accounts. The tweet read, Muslims praying at halftime at the match yesterday, hashtag disgrace. Just a very sort of grainy picture of two people under stairwells in prostration. So, you know, nobody would be able to sort of recognize us. But later, when the club got involved, I think, uh, and, and then when the media got involved, that's when our names came out. After that, it just snowballed and... And, you know, it got into the mainstream media. Their experience was written about in The Guardian and the BBC. Yeah, I suppose I felt a bit like a celebrity, to be honest. It was, you know, like uh, five minutes of, of fame, as, as it were. And uh, in a sense, I just felt probably more than anything, just proud that, I, you know, I wasn't not proud of the fame as such, but just proud of the fact that, you know, we weren't letting bigots or anybody stop us from, from doing our duty. So, you know, obviously, that's our belief that we have to pray five times a day and come hell or high water, regardless of circumstances, wherever we are, we have to say our prayers. Asif doesn't use social media, so when the photo was making its rounds, he didn't have much of a reaction. I don't have time you know, for Twitter and Insta and all, all these things, and you know, I'm too opinionated. I'd probably get myself into trouble if I go on these sites anyway, but when this person uploaded this onto Twitter, the photo, with the comment, disgraceful, I'm thinking, well, you know, just can you elaborate on that? I mean, what, what makes you think it's disgraceful? It's okay having one line, a one-line comment, but you've got to be a bit more explanatory, haven't you? You've got to say why. Like Asif's friends and colleagues, fans from around the world stepped up to defend the two lawyers. Liverpool Football Club worked quickly with the Merseyside Police Department to investigate the incident. And the social discourse that followed paved the way for Premier League teams to build multi-faith prayer rooms in their stadiums. Naturally, Liverpool was one of the first. And just two years after the incident at Anfield, 
Liverpool signed Mohamed Salah, one of the world's best strikers. And above all, a Muslim man who celebrated his goals by praying to God. Asif and Abu Bakr weren't the only ones who noticed. It was very nice because, you know, people would, you know, message me every time he scored and say, look, he's doing the same as you did. It's a prostration of gratitude. The prostration of gratitude a Muslim can do at any time when, for example, something good happens. So obviously, he, he, every time he scores, he's happy about it. So so, so he, he prostrates in, in gratitude to the Lord. So... Uh, when he does it, I mean, it's it's great. It, it sort of gives you an affinity to him because obviously he's a Muslim as well. And the fans loved him for it. All of this caught the attention of Salma Musa and some of her colleagues. Salma is an Egyptian-Canadian political scientist. She's currently an assistant professor at Yale, but at the time, she was getting her PhD at Stanford University. It really started when we started reading news headlines about how Salah is changing people's attitudes. And at the same time, we were watching the games and we see him praying and, you know, prostrating. He puts his head toward the ground. And even though you have so many Muslim players at the elite level, you don't really see them doing that. They're not so visibly Muslim, I would say. Um, so, for example, Paul Pogba, a lot of people might not even know he's Muslim. So to see that kind of very visible practice and then we see, I think the turning point was when we saw the video of the Liverpool supporters. And they're singing, if he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim too. And sitting in the mosque, that's where I want to be. That's where I was like, okay, we need to study this. We need to actually test if this is really changing attitudes because this is not the kind of chant that you hear every day. You're listening to The Long Game from Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. And now back to our story about Faith, Liverpool, and Mohamed Saleh. When it comes to football, Salma knows what she's talking about. She fell in love with the game while spending her summers in Egypt as a kid. My only like real diehard teams used to be the Egyptian national team and somewhat Zemelik, which is one of the big teams in Cairo. My family is, is just a big supporter of that team and we have been for generations. Then, to be honest, following Salah kind of got me a little more interested uh, in European football. I was kind of just a neutral watching and then I found myself watching Basel, and then watching Chelsea, and then watching Syria. All places Salah used to play. And so everyone asks me, are you going to still be a Liverpool fan when Salah leaves? And so that's going to be the true test of my Liverpool fandom. For Salma, Salah's arrival at Liverpool was the perfect chance to study the two things she loves most, politics and football. And at Stanford, she found other people who shared her passions. So my other co-authors are Ale El Rababa. Uh, he's Jordanian and he's just a mega soccer, you know, he's a, just a freak. He's just obsessed. Will Marble, another political scientist, was the third member to join the team. And he's really interested in anything to do with sports. Like he's a big uh, Sixers fan, Eagles fan, so you can guess where he's from. And finally, the group welcomed Alexandra Siegel. She was doing a research fellowship at Stanford at the same time as Salma. She's one of the best in the world at, at scraping and analyzing things like tweets, Reddit posts, YouTube comments. She's figured it out totally. She also has a background studying the Middle East and speaking Arabic. And so she was really interested in this idea. So it was kind of a, if I can say, it was kind of a dream team that happened to be at Stanford at the same time. 
Before beginning their study, Salma and her team needed a research question. Does exposure to celebrities from a stigmatized group reduce prejudice towards that entire outgroup? The team analyzed social media posts and combed through police reports. In the end, they surveyed 8,600 people and analyzed close to 15 million tweets in the UK. Their findings are quite inspiring. According to the study, over the last two years, there were 18.9% fewer hate crimes than predicted and a 53% fall in anti-Muslim tweets among Liverpool fans. Overall, we interpret these results to support the hypothesis that Salah's arrival at Liverpool FC caused a decrease in extreme acts of bigotry." End quote. Mohamed Salah is a tireless advocate for his community and his faith, but the word activist is rarely mentioned in unison with his name. And unfortunately, that word has been used to discredit athletes around the world. Just ask Colin Kaepernick, Naomi Osaka, and Marcus Rashford. And at times, it seems like Salah is aware of this. You can't get around the fact that the guy is Muslim, you know? His wife wears a headscarf, he prays, his name is Muhammad. But for the most part, Salah doesn't talk about his faith. So when the fans serenade him after a game, he quickly acknowledges it before going back to talking about goals and teamwork. You're enjoying that, Mo. The fans are enjoying it as much as you. It's a big, it's a big statement, isn't it, for Liverpool? Yeah, it's a good song. I like it, but you know, in the end, I said many times, well, I play for the team. I try to score each game for to help the team to get a point, to, to win a game. That's the most important thing for me. Congratulations, gentlemen. Thanks for your time. But it should go without saying, not every Muslim player around the world can change attitudes just by going about their business. So Salah is amazing at what he does. He's amazing for the national team, for Liverpool. He's, he's brought Liverpool to these new heights that they haven't seen in decades. He's a, a nice guy. He generally doesn't take any kind of political stances. Like he's not a polarizing figure whatsoever. So you have this kind of model minority image, right? So he's nearly perfect. And so the question for us is, does this mean that minority players have to be nearly perfect to change attitudes when they mess up? Is there going to be a huge backlash? What happens when they stop scoring? We saw this on full display during the European Championship this summer. After playing two periods of extra time, the final game between England and Italy was decided by PKs. England's fate now rested on the shoulders of three black players, all under the age of 23. It's the teenager, Bukayo Saka, one of the youngest players ever to play in the European Championship. He's got to score here to keep England alive. Salma was watching the game unfold on her television. And when I saw those three young black players all in a row missing, right afterwards, I, told, I spoke with my co-authors and I'm like, this is so predictable. We know exactly what's going to happen now. The three black players who missed a penalty shot in the final, each the target of racist abuse online. The morning after in London... Not Hateful images and racial slurs targeting their social media profiles with other slurs. Some fans telling Saka to go back to Nigeria. He was born in London. So that's the question for us now that we're, inve that we're investigating. How important is success? And we think it's probably very important. Um, you hear players like, um, I think, Eric Cantona and uh, Mesut Ozil and... Uh, Lukaku, they've all said something along the lines of, you know, when the team is doing well or when I'm doing well, 
I'm Belgian, I'm German, like the team is French. And when we are not succeeding, all of a sudden it becomes, oh, the Congolese striker, oh, the Turkish immigrant, you know? And so that's, this is something the players have talked about for a long time and we want to put some numbers to that. Salma says that as an academic, her goal has always been to use science to help people get along better. And she hopes that with this research, she's found a blueprint for similar studies about identity and prejudice. The one that comes to mind is Giannis from the Bucks. As in Giannis Antetokounmpo, professional basketball player for the Milwaukee Bucks. During the 2020-2021 season, he led the Bucks to an NBA championship and was named Finals MVP. Inside for the slam, 39 points for Giannis. There you have a, a kid who's African, who's a refugee, who's done this amazing thing, you know, carried this team. Um, no offense, his other teammates were also amazing, but, you know, he's kind of the talisman for that team. And for us, the natural question was, well, are people now going to change their attitudes about refugees? Are people going to be more welcoming of refugees and more supportive of uh, refugee policy in the U.S.? And that's the kind of thing that we actually can answer with empirical data and we hope to answer in the future. But this needs one really important thing, which is that people have to know that he's a refugee, right? Just logically, they have to know that about him. And I don't think that many people know that about him. It's not that public. Issues of race, gender, religion, and sexual orientation are constantly politicized, which gives athletes an added layer of pressure to deal with. And unfortunately, when someone takes on a social justice issue, it could be the case that they are then polarizing like half of the fan base. And so you're not going to see those effects. But by speaking up, athletes can use their platform to humanize a cause. And that's a really big thing for us because we don't want the takeaway from our study to be, oh, celebrities should just shut up and dribble. And Salah only has this effect on Islamophobia because he tends to not take on any political stances. But just because he doesn't pen any op-eds or lead protests in the street, doesn't mean Salah's activism can't be felt at all levels of the game. You see a lot of sort of people who are not Muslims. I mean, uh, sometimes I'll go to see my nephew. That's Liverpool fan Abu Bakr Bula again. He's a young lad playing football just in uh, in a small league in Preston, and he, he doesn't even support Liverpool. But when if he scores a goal, he'll prostrate. And similarly, even people who don't follow Islam who are not Muslims, young kids playing on the park or whatever, you know, you'll see them just copying him, emulating him. So it's it's a good thing, yeah. Asif Bodhi sees how things have changed for Liverpool's Muslim fans, especially while using the prayer room at Anfield. Oh yes, we, we use it quite regularly. In fact, it's it's been a victim of its own success because it's way too small now. And sometimes the place is full, they have to have you know, people queuing up outside. I've even seen people playing on the grass outside because the room is not large enough. And I've even seen people playing on the sidewalk and most supporters, they just walk past without commenting at all. That's it for this episode of The Long Game. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. The Long Game is a co-production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. This episode was produced by Nico Emac and Karen Given, with help from Darius Buama, Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Metha. Make sure to follow us on Apple or your favorite podcast app, and please leave us a review. To learn more, subscribe to Foreign Policy, a global magazine of news and ideas, or visit Doha Debates, a production of Qatar Foundation. Next week on the podcast, 
As a young child, Ibrahim al-Hussein dreamed of representing Syria at the Olympics. His father was a swimming coach, and Ibrahim was talented. But by the time he was 22 years old, those dreams had been shattered. When the situation in Syria erupted in 2011, my life changed entirely. No more training, and there was nothing left. After that, in 2012, the situation was even worse, and my parents went out of their zoo, where we lived, to go to a safer place. But I couldn't go with them for one reason. The military would conscript me, and I'd be obliged to serve with them. And that's not what I wanted. That's next week on The Long Game.